This morning text comes from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 510. In the past, I've been somewhat rebellious and read from the NIV, so this morning I'm going to try the ESV via the phone app. Um, Jesus, the great high priest. Since we then have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confessions. For we have not a high priest who is unable to sympathize on our weakest, but one who is very, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. For every high priest is chosen from among among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. But because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes his honor for himself, but only when he is called by God, just as Aaron was. So also God did not exalt himself to be made as high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, and after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he had suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designed by God, a high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. Good morning, and please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4 for our sermon this morning. titled today's message, Drawing Near to Grace. And this phrase doesn't exactly come from the text, but, but the ideas of drawing near to God and God's grace being available to the humble, and, and ultimately drawing near to God is drawing near to grace, to His grace in our humility. Last week we heard the invitation of Jesus, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And this text wasn't necessarily chosen to to be a follow-up to that, but you might note that there are some parallels. Jesus invites us to himself. He invites us to a place of rest in him. When we are yoked with him, his burden is light. And so he says, come to me. And here in James, we're instructed to draw near to God. This is an imperative. James here is is writing to believers. He's writing to those who have come to Christ and who are bearing his yoke, and still he commands them, as us, draw near to God. And when we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. I'd like to give just a a bit of a context for this passage. We, We looked at part of this Um, in our last sermon, and and noted the contrast between the the pride that's mentioned in the the first section and the destruction that that brings versus the humility that is is noted in the second part of the chapter. 
The, the proud person really only sees or understands his own perspective and, and doesn't want to see or, or not, is not willing to see any other options. And so his, his point of reference is always himself, and, and anything that challenges that, he becomes defensive or aggressive about protecting that. I had to think of small children. Many of us have young children in the house. And one thing that we like to, to notice about our kids and maybe point out to others is, is how smart we think they are. And so maybe they know some sign language when they're a year old, or they can use big words when they're two, or maybe they can drive the lawnmower when they're four. But for all their intelligence that, that we think they have, you know, their, their perspective on life is, is really rather small. Their, their entire world is, is about this big. And, and so all they can think about it at any given time is, is what's inside their little circle. So if you take that, the toy or the bottle or the pacifier away from them, it, it really becomes a crisis of, of epic proportions. And, and nothing else matters at that point. It's about getting back what they lost. Now, so imagine a, a similar loss in your life as an adult. Maybe it's a fresh cup of coffee from your favorite coffee shop or a fresh donut from your favorite donut maker. I can't say any names here because we don't want to start a fight with that either. But just as, as you go to enjoy that, that treat, you know, a gust of wind comes along and, and blows it away. For, for some of us, you know, that's a bigger crisis than for others. But most of the time, we don't become completely undone by this loss that we experience. And, and I would submit it's because our perspective on life is, is bigger than this little circle. We, we know that, that life is bigger than a latte, and that security is not found in a warm donut. So, so what's the point of, of this? Well, the, the smaller our life, the more the things that we want matter to us, and the more we will fight to get them or to keep them. And that's the life of the proud person. He's in love with himself and his desires and everything else he opposes. But the humble person, the one who is full of grace, has a different perspective and is able to live well before God and others. Now, it is true, life is big, life is difficult. There, there are things that we face in life that are, are bigger than just the kid losing his toys or spilling our coffee. Whether it's training our young children or raising teenagers or meeting our financial needs or just battling the, the emotional challenges in life, it, it can be worrisome and it can be challenging. And in this, we also need a perspective that is bigger than our trials. Otherwise, we will end up fighting ourselves or fighting others or even fighting God when our burdens threaten to overwhelm us. And we will fight using the, the limited methods of the world that we're in and we'll fight from the limited perspective that this world can offer to us. There is more to life. There, there is more than what we can see, and it is available to us now. God yearns jealously over us. He wants us to turn our affections to him. He invites us to come to him, to experience his grace, and he wants us to be transformed in the ways that we fight our battles. So let's look at our text and see what he says. James chapter 4, I'll be reading verses 6 through 12. 
but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? God's grace enlarges our little worlds. And because of his grace, we can draw near to him, and he transforms our perspectives and reshapes our realities. And because of his grace, it's no longer about us. It's not about us meeting our needs or overcoming our trials. But because of Christ and because of his grace, we submit ourselves under his rule. The theme of this passage here is humility, which, as I noted, is contrasted to the proud person that we see in the first part of the chapter. And so we, we grow in humility as we draw near to God, and we grow in humility as we draw near to His grace. Now, if, if you think too much about yourself or you think too little about God, you will not be humble. And it starts with God, and we see in verse 6, it says, He gives more grace. And, and before James launches into this series of commands about how we're to live before God, he, he reminds us of the basis for these instructions. It's because He gives more grace. He doesn't just give us enough to, to scrape by. He's not stingy with His grace. The, the root word in, in the Greek here for more is megas, which is a large amount, a very great amount of grace. And Paul gives us an idea of, of the generosity of God in the grace that he offers in 2 Corinthians 9, 8. It says, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So God is not the one holding back. He is not stingy in giving us grace. And grace is transforming. It enlarges our world. It changes what we do and why we do it. So without grace, all of our drawing near to God, all of our resisting the devil, all of our loving our brother will be done in the wrong way. We'll, we'll be trying to, to do it to get, to get something from God. But if, if we've re really tasted of the Lord's goodness, like the deer panting for the water brooks, we'll keep coming back for more, not because we are commanded to, but we find that, that we cannot live without it. It doesn't just refresh us, it sustains us. And the grace of God is life-giving. Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
So it's the life of Christ in us that transforms us into life-giving, light-shining, little Christ in a world that is dead and dark. And it's one thing to, to know these things about the spiritual life, but it's another thing to experience them. But to experience them requires that we have a humble heart. Grace does not exist in the proud person. God opposes the proud person, but he gives grace to the humble person. So think of the person you know who who you might describe as a humble person, the the one who is the most patient, the kindest, the most gracious, the most uncomplaining, the gentlest, most loving person you know. You, You pick someone out like that, and you don't think about them as a proud person. A proud person is is overbearing or or snobbish, disdainful or stuck up. He doesn't need anybody's help, and he doesn't need God. But he will be destroyed. The proud person is going to meet the opposition of God himself. While the humble person loves the grace of God, he's experienced the grace of God. And and so he knows that that the things that we encounter in life that we get all flustered about— are not really the, the ultimate reality. It's not the biggest disaster. He finds joy in, in serving God and in his neighbor when there's no payback. And he rests in the reality of God's grace, not in a just an intellectual, academic way, but in a real, experiential way that, that reorganizes his life's priorities. And as he does that, God pours out more and more grace. So with that background, now we are prepared to look at the series of commands that he gives us starting in verse 7. And there's 11 imperative verbs in verses 7 through 11. And so I'll run down the list. It says, submit, resist, draw near, cleanse, purify, be wretched, mourn, weep, be turned, humble, and do not speak. These are all imperative verbs. Eight of them are active imperative verbs, and three of them are passive imperative verbs. And I'm talking here about the, the original Greek verb tenses. If you look them up, um, you, you, can, you can look up whether this is a passive or active verb. And so just, just to refresh the difference, an active verb is something that that carries out the, the action of the subject. So you say, Jack hit the ball. Jack, the subject of the, of the sentence, carries out the action. But a passive verb, on the other hand, describes action that was done to the subject by someone else. Jack was hit by the ball. So, so he receives the action from someone else. So it, you know, it, it's a bit of a dilemma. How do you carry out a passive imperative verb? How, how do you do something that happens to you? But it's, it's an imperative. One of these is in verse 9. It says, let your laughter be turned to mourning. So th- this, this is a passive verb, but it's something that you allow to happen to you. You don't actually turn your laughter into mourning yourself. But when, when you allow the reality of your sin to, to impact you, you're, you're deeply moved, and, and you allow yourself to be put into this position that you receive the action, and you mourn because of that. So what are the other two passive imperative verbs in this text? It's in verse 7 
and verse 10, submit yourselves and humble yourselves. It's kind of like a sandwich that the top and bottom of most of these commands is submission and humility. And they are really critical to being able to carry out the rest. So God gives grace to the humble, but we do not actively humble ourselves in this context. But I believe it's something that we permit to happen to us as we pursue God, as we actively pursue God. We receive His grace. We rest in His work. And in the process, we find ourselves stripped of any claim that we might have to being righteous or being good, and we are humbled before God. But because we are in Christ, because we've experienced His grace, we find that we cannot sit and do nothing. We will respond to His grace in our lives. And so James here describes three categories of ways that grace will change our lives. And I'll look at each of these briefly. So the first one is we resist the devil. The second one is draw near to God. And the third one is we experience personal transformation. So number one, we resist the devil. James doesn't spend a lot of time here talking about this command. He assumes that the devil is active and he instructs us to resist him. And we see this um, language as well in, in 1 Peter 5, and, and turn to that if you will, and I'll, I'll read a few verses from there. 1 Peter chapter 5. Verses 5 through 11. It says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now we know that, that suffering is ultimately a result of the fall, which is a result of, of the devil's work in the Garden of Eden. But the, the work of the devil isn't just to inflict suffering, but that through our suffering, he wants to draw people away from God. And, and the devil uses suffering and temptation to turn people against God. And so Peter here talks about resisting the devil, and it's in the context of suffering. We might think that, that we're trusting the Lord when, when life is going well, but it is in times of suffering that our faith is also revealed. He uses suffering to tempt us to question God. And there's many ways that, that we suffer. It's not just that the health and financial crises that, that arise unexpectedly, but it might just be the, the daily pressures of life, whether you're 
digging ditches or washing dishes or managing employees or, or serving customers, it, it can start to weigh us down and it feels heavy to us and it, it seems that God is distant. Sometimes it, it's particular seasons of life that we suffer, whether it's a seasonal affective disorder at this time of the year or marital strife or relations, relationships in the church are difficult. It, it, whatever our suffering is, whether it's kind of this low-grade, constant, nagging suffering or a, a acute, high-grade disaster, the devil will, will use those times of difficulty to ask unsettling questions and to draw our hearts away from God. And James and Peter here both have the same instruction, resist the devil. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, that the struggle isn't against our circumstances. It's not against the circumstances of our suffering that we are to resist or to overcome. It is the devil who are, we are to resist because it is the devil who comes to us in our suffering and tries to draw us away from God. And we resist the devil through our faith in God. It's not that resisting the devil will, will cause our suffering to cease, but our faith is in God who will himself restore, confirm, and strengthen us. And we will particularly face his temptation when we are drawing near to God, which is the next command that James gives us. He says, draw near to God. And I think this is kind of the, the, the apex of this series of commands and, and the one from which the, the others will, will find their proper place. And it is essentially a drawing near to God's grace. There's a difference, though, as I said, in knowing God's grace and experiencing His grace. And, and this, this drawing near to God is, is an experience of God's grace. Jonathan Edwards said it's a bit like honey. We, we can learn all about honey. We can analyze the sugar content, and, and we can even describe in, in lots of technical details the reasons that honey tastes sweet and, and which receptors on the tongue help us to taste the sweetness of the honey. But there's, there's nothing to, to replace actually putting some honey in your mouth and, and tasting it. And then you know how sweet the honey is. Someone else has said that, that if we don't long for God, it's not because we've drunk deeply and been satisfied, but because we have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things, and there is no room for the great. And so drawing near to God allows us to taste the sweetness of His grace. It doesn't change the nature of His grace to us. It doesn't make us more justified than we were before. But as we experience more of God, we want more of God, not because we have to, but because we know without Him we can do nothing. And we also need to be reminded that God is with us. God is near. Jesus is here all the time. And so it's not that we're going somewhere um, to, to be closer to God than, than we are right now, but it's, it's more of, of it bringing our hearts to Him. And, and one way we do this is, is through developing a view and an understanding of God that is not based on our emotions or feelings, but based on, on what He has revealed to us through his word. In the Old Testament, drawing near to God was, was dangerous 
when God gave the covenant to Moses, he, he set limits on how close the people could come to the mountain, lest he would break out against them and destroy them. And when the Lord's presence was in the temple, there were certain limits on who could come before the Lord to offer these sacrifices and how often they could come. So drawing near to God involved sacrifice and worship. But now, because of the sacrifice of Christ, we, we can all draw near to God without fear, as we heard in, in, from the reading in Hebrews. In, in Hebrews 10, it says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Second Corinthians also talks about the, the effects of, of drawing near to God. And it uses the language of, of beholding the glory of the Lord in chapter 318. And it has this idea of, of looking at God's glory as, as in a mirror, as a reflection. And as we do that, we're transformed into his image. But what actually changes? What, what gets transformed as we behold the glory of the Lord? John Owens says that beholding the glory of the Lord must have an affecting power on our lives. In other words, it changes what we care about. It changes what we love. It changes what we feel as we behold the glory of the Lord. And here's a rough quote from Owens. If the beauty and glory of Christ do not capture our imaginations, dominate our waking thought, fill our heart with longing and desire, something else will. We will continually ruminate on something, and that thing will frame our soul and transform us into its likeness. So, so what is framing your soul? What are you ruminating on? What are you being transformed into? Part of drawing near to God is keeping him in our awareness so that we can be transformed into his likeness. Second Corinthians 4, 6 says, The light of the knowledge of the glory of God has been given to us in the face of Jesus Christ. And so to, to see Jesus is to know God's glory. And as we draw nearer to God, his glory will shine brighter in our lives. So for a, a few practical comments on how um, this, this might affect us today. This morning, as, as we gather to worship, the, the Word of God is, is central to what we do. We, we worship a God that can be known and, and who has made himself known to us. And so as we worship, as we draw near to him, we do it based on what he has revealed to us. But this relationship goes two ways. He's made himself known, but we, we can't know him unless we are drawing near to him. And how do we do that? We learn to know God through his word. And, and this is one context in which it happens, through the preaching of the word. But we also have opportunities in Sunday school time where we study his word together and discuss how it might impact our lives in that context. We, we worship him corporately. We, we sing our songs and, and draw near to him. We can also draw near to God by hearing how he is moving and working in other people's lives. And so the services that, that we have, whether it's the Sunday school or the, the Sunday morning worship or the Sunday evening services, discipleship groups, study groups, 
They're not just options that, that we kind of enjoy if we're in the mood or if there's nothing else more important. These are particular opportunities that we have to draw near to God through growing in our knowledge of Him and to help us see His purpose in our life more clearly or to speak into someone else's life with encouragement or intercede on their behalf. Each particular aspect of church life has particular ways of revealing God to you and particular ways that you can be a part of that in in knowing God and drawing near to Him. There was a story about a nobleman in a mountain village in Europe a few centuries ago who wanted to build a church for the people of the village. He wanted to do it kind of to, to leave a legacy, and so no one was allowed to see the inside of this church until it was done. And so at, at its completion, the, the people gathered and, and were marveling at the beauty of this new church. But then someone pointed out that there were, there were no lamps in this church. How will the church be lighted, they said. The nobleman pointed to some brackets on the wall, and then he gave each family a lamp. Every time you are here, he said, the place you are seated will be lighted. When you are gone, that place will be dark. Thirdly, flowing out of resisting the devil's temptations and drawing near to God, we will experience a personal change. And this is described in several ways in the rest of these verses. But there's a change that transforms the inner life, a change that transforms the outer behaviors, and one that transforms the interpersonal relationships. James is is very direct with these people. He calls them double-minded. He calls them sinners. Their pride and their fighting and their quarreling is evidence that they need more sanctification in their personal lives. And one of the, the chief marks of the sanctified life is the way we love our brother. Obedience results in more love. And if, if you're not loving your brother, you're not obeying God. And he's not just calling for a change of their behavior. He, he's demanding a change of heart. When we fully realize the extent of, of God's grace and love and, and the extent of our own depravity, that will result in a broken heart. And the heart of pride will be crushed under this weight. The humble person allows himself to experience this weight, to to be moved by the fact that he is a sinful person and that God's grace is greater. And so he's devastated. He is sad. He he weeps over his sinfulness. He knows that he brings nothing to Christ. And and so he assumes this posture of nothingness before the Lord. And he knows that whatever he's bringing to God is a gift of God's grace to him. And so James isn't calling here for, for the Christian life to be one of, of melancholy, um, you know, going about with long faces. But this is particularly when we realize our sinfulness. This, this is to be the posture before God of the, the humble person. And, and we know there's, there's other instructions in the Bible about the, the life of rejoicing and thankfulness that we are to, um, to live as Christians. But then in verses 11 and 12, he, he basically reiterates the point that he made at the beginning of the chapter. He, he reminds them 
not to speak evil against each other. And this idea of evil is, is speaking evil is the idea of slander. It's not so much what you say to a person, but what you say about a person. And again, he, he just talked about this in chapter 3. So he, he keeps reiterating this and, and I think um, highlights the importance of this, both in the life of his audience and in the life of the church today. So speaking evil about another brother, whether it's about their character or their family or their motives, he says is, is sinful. And, and sometimes we, we say you know, that the sin in gossip is that you're repeating something that, that's untrue, that um, you know, the, the, the more it gets repeated, the, the more it gets changed, and eventually it's not true at all, and, and so you're, you're saying the untruth about someone else. That's not so much the, the sin that's in view is the fact that you're saying something untrue. The, the sin is that you're repeating something negative about someone else. That's not loving your brother. And so he goes on to, to make a comparison here as well between judging one's brother and judging the law. And I don't have a claim to have a, a perfect understanding of, of all the implications of, of these verses, but I'll offer this perspective Jesus also said in Matthew 7, judge not that you be not judged. But then he went on to say that the measure you use will be measured against you. And so you shouldn't try to take the speck out of your brother's eye when you have a log in your own eye. But then Jesus later said, beware of false prophets and and goes on to talk about how you will know them by their fruits. So there are some things that, that we are to judge. And The difference is the way we judge them and what we are judging. And James here is speaking against a judgmental spirit, a critical attitude, the same thing that Jesus condemned in Matthew 7. James says, why are you critical and judgmental and unloving to your brother? Because in your critical, ungracious, judgmental attitude, you yourself are breaking the law. You're breaking the royal law, which says, love your neighbor as yourself. And so in doing that, in your spirit of critical, judgmental, ungraciousness to others, you're, you're placing yourselves above the law. You're, you're giving yourself a pass to the law of love in order to criticize this perceived transgression that somebody else has. You're trying to judge a heart or motive that you don't actually know, and thus placing yourself in the position of God, who is the one lawgiver and judge. So it's not so much about what you're judging it, but how you're doing it. And and so this position of of pride or arrogance or or judgmentalism is different from a position of humility and grace. And Jesus also said in the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18 that those who do not forgive their brother from their hearts do not have the Father's mercy. So it is the humble heart, the grace-filled life, that gives grace abundantly to others, and that has received it from God. Today, Jesus still invites you to come to him. He is meek and humble. Will you draw near to him? Will you accept his grace? Is the humble life something that you are ready to receive? Have you tasted the grace that compels you to come back for more? Or are you living a small life, sipping on the small pleasures of the world and experiencing the slow death of your soul 
from living for yourself? Are you in bondage to the devil's pleasures? Do you harbor some bitterness towards your brother or sister? Are you critical and judgmental, thus violating the law of love? God gives grace. He gives mega grace. Submit yourself, humble yourself, draw near to his grace, and he will exalt you. Let's have a song.